Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode 209. And in today's voyage, I'm not voyaging outside of my home here in Brooklyn. The reason for that is I'm talking about a place in Brooklyn called Barren Island. You may know of Dead Horse Bay. Dead Horse Bay is in the southern part of Brooklyn. It is a bay, and it is full of trash and quite ancient trash. It's embedded within the sand. You could go to Google now if you've never heard of this before and pull up pictures of all these wild things that are found there. There are a lot of bottles, there's shoes, there's animal bones, and there's a reason for some of that trash that is related to Barren Island. My guest in today's episode is Miriam Sisherman. She wrote a book called Brooklyn's Barren Island, A Forgotten History. And she did a lot of research on the island and provided a really fascinating history in this book. It's an island that in the 1800s and the very early 1900s was a place where garbage was processed and dead animals were processed as well like dead horses, because before automobiles, people were getting around by horse. And they can be turned into a lot of important products when they're dead and they're processed. And so because of this, the island became kind of notorious. And there was a really interesting sort of uh, almost like class divide where people were looking down at, at the people on Barren Island who were working in these industries which were labeled as nuisance industries. So I won't give you any more of the history. Miriam does a much better job than I can. But I find this topic really fascinating. There's so many really cool places in New York City, so many little spots that you would pass and maybe never even know that there's some important history that took place there. And more and more, these types of things are turning into whatever, Target or, or Whole Foods or Starbucks. And I think it's really important that we preserve the history, and Miriam has done just that. So if you go to the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to get the book. You'll find a link to her Instagram account, so you can see some of the pictures that we talked about. And we also talk about a petition that she's working on to preserve a lot of the materials that are in Dead Horse Bay. Also in the show notes for this episode, you will find a link to my Patreon account. I just updated the tiers on there, and it's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. The Patreon supporters help to keep episodes coming, first of all, but they're also helping to fund some of the printed materials that I'm making now. I'm just about to send Voyages Volume 2 to the printers, the first uh, volume of Voyages was the Williamsburg, Brooklyn um, food guide. And the one that I'm working on now is a collection of my journals from Morocco. And it's a really cool volume three that we'll be following that up with. Also, there's lots of episodes coming, folks. Thanks for uh, bearing with me for a little two-week hiatus. But I will be traveling a bit here within the States. And I got all sorts of really cool stuff booked for you. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Miriam Sisherman. 
first again, thank you for for hosting me here. Uh, sure. I appreciate you giving me the uh, the space in the forum. Uh, are you originally from New York? I'm originally from Westchester County. Okay. But I've lived in the city since 1995. Gotcha. Yeah, I was thinking that like the the topic that you cover, like you would almost have to be from New York because there's there's like a reverence for what you're writing about. Well, I mean, I think most New Yorkers who come across this, like native New Yorkers who grew up in the city have never heard of Barren Island. Even mm. people grew up in Brooklyn. Like the only people I've met who've heard of it or grew up in like that area of Brooklyn, like a Marine Park or somewhere around there. But I have been in the city since 1995 and I love exploring the city. So, When I first reached out to you, I sort of mislabeled the work you did. See, I uh, have since bought your book and read it. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was interested in Dead Horse Bay and I had been there mm-hmm. um, and knew nothing of, of Barren Island. It, I'm jumping here, but do you know who Graham Hancock is? No. He's... He's an author. I don't know if you would call him an historian or an anthropologist, but he had started out writing fiction and he now writes about places like, if you know of uh, Golbekli Tepe in, uh, in Turkey, I think. It's places that they're starting to unearth that predate when we first or when historians agree upon like the first true civilizations having taken place. Essentially saying that some pretty advanced societies potentially could have predated what we think of as when societies first existed. Maybe it's not a perfect correlation, (laughs) but when I read your book, and I think about this all the time with Changing New York, like a rock club becomes a Starbucks or an apartment complex, and we potentially could lose out on that history. And you already were covering a subject that didn't have a ton of data and didn't have a ton of documentation. So is, is that the reason why you decided to write about Barren Island, to, to preserve that history and make sure that there's a, a record of it? Yes. I mean, I also was looking for, I was doing a master's in history at Brooklyn College and I was looking for a thesis topic and I really wanted to choose something that I was really genuinely interested in. I wasn't in a hurry to get it done. It was just doing the master's for my own interest. So I wanted to find something that I really wanted to spend a lot of time with. Whereas when I was in grad school for teaching, I just needed to get the degree so I could start teaching. Um, so I had gotten into in, interested in garbage. Um, I can't remember if you and I talked about my closet archaeology project at school. No. So you don't know what I'm talking about, right? No. Okay. So I'll, to back up a little bit, um, my school is in a building that was built in 1913. It's on 12th Street between Avenue B and C. So it was built at a time when that neighborhood was incredibly densely populated and there were new schools springing up all the time. And it has been slightly renovated over the years, but not that much. So it's a pretty creaky old building that's falling apart. And... In our classroom and in a lot of the classrooms, there the way the children's coat closet is built, it's a little hard to describe in words, but it, um, I have pictures actually around here somewhere, but uh, the way the closet is built, essentially there's a hollow, the floor of the closet is raised above the floor of the classroom. There's a hollow space under the floor and there's a sort of crack that, just under the floor of the closet, there's a crack that goes along with it that's built into the closet where sliding doors are supposed to go, although most of them are broken. And so it's about an inch wide. And in about six years ago, one of my students got very 
obsessed with old coins. And he wondered if any coins had ever fallen into that little space. And he began, we had a 10 minute break every single morning because we had a very long morning with a late lunch. And the kids could kind of do whatever they wanted as long as it was not dangerous or whatever. So he started trying to like tweeze things out of this crack in the closet using <laughs> pencils like chopsticks. And he started pulling things out and he'd be like, hey, I found a penny from 1967. And I'd be like, cool, well, that's great, enjoy. Right. <laughs> um, and then, it, then other kids got curious and pretty soon they started pulling out some very old stuff. Like we found a baseball card from 1912. Whoa. Um, and when they started pulling out stuff like that, I was like, hey, remember how I said you could just take all that stuff home and do whatever you want with it? Now you have to bring everything back and nothing is leaving. And now we're going to be serious about this. Yeah. And all the kids got interested in it. And so they all started like whenever they had a free moment, like tweezing things out of the crack in the closet. So we started finding most of the stuff. You know, some stuff had fallen in there by accident, like coins, obviously nobody put in there on purpose, but some of it was just garbagey stuff that would have been garbage at the time. There are a lot of candy wrappers, for example, that we assume kids probably deliberately stuffed in there so they wouldn't get caught with candy, brandy, brands of candy that none of us had ever heard of. Um, and just tons of old stuff, movie mm. tickets, literally 10 cent movie tickets from a movie theater that had been next door that we didn't know had ever existed. It's a little time um, capsule. <laughs> yeah, it's a time capsule. Exactly. And we called it, we actually ended up having, do you know the city reliquary museum? Oh, that's right by where I live. Yeah. yeah. So we had an exhibit there in 2017 that we called an accidental time capsule. Oh, cool. And so we've been, it wasn't just my room. Also, we excavated from a whole bunch of different rooms and there's still plenty of closets in the building. That, so we've been doing it ever since. And that got me and the kids very interested in garbage and like what we throw away and never think about again. Because mm. most of what we were finding was stuff that like whoever lost it or threw it away never thought about it again. And we actually have also made contact with some people whose names we found on things. We found a man who lost $2 in an envelope in 1959 and we tracked him down. No way. Yeah, they had savings accounts at school. Um, and a lot of people who went to school then have said, oh yeah, I remember my school savings account. So it was his $2 oh. like weekly deposit or something that his mom sent in in this envelope. So it had his name on it and it had the year, the date. So that helped me track him down because I knew what age person oh, I was so looking cool. for. Yeah, so we tracked him down and it, you know, that was really fun. And we've tracked down a few people who went to our school decades and decades ago. Um, at any rate, the whole thing got the kids very interested in the idea, like, oh, something I throw away now that's meaningless to me could be this, like, object of fascination for somebody in the future. And I just started thinking more about garbage. And I was already interested in environmental history in general, so I thought, okay, I'll do something about garbage in New York City. I thought maybe I would do something about fresh kills hmm. or, you know, some other landfill or something. And so I just started reading and actually have a book here that I can show you um, called The Fat of the Land, which is about the history of garbage in New York City. And oh. it had like three or four pages on Barren Island. And I had been to Dead Horse Bay once or twice, like years earlier and didn't really know anything about it, but thought it was cool. And I certainly had never heard of Barren Island, even though I had been there. And um, so I started trying to find out more about Barren Island and I realized there was no, nothing had been published about it. So I was like, all right, here's my thesis topic if I can find enough sources. Wow. Um, and I just loved it. Like I never got bored of my thesis topic the way people sometimes do. So then once it was done and my master's was done, my advisor suggested like, oh, you might be able to get this published as a book. But This maybe is a bit of an aside, but yeah. if you live in New York and you've never thought about garbage, this has been a particularly snowy winter. Right. And there was a good like three week stretch where they didn't even really come and pick up. Mm -hmm. And since then, there's just been trash everywhere. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it is yeah. 
And it just looks gross. But yeah. like if you go to Dead Horse Bay, the trash looks am- fascinating to men, not to everybody, but I think a lot of people find it very interesting and also aesthetically satisfying in a way. Whereas yeah. when you see your street covered with garbage because somebody's garbage bag ripped open and flew everywhere, it's just disgusting. I'm going to come back to Dead Horse Bay, and I know that's not your primarily primary uh, area of expertise, mm-hmm. um, but you certainly know more than me. But let's let's talk about uh, let's give people a picture of Barren Island mm-hmm. geographically. Where mm-hmm. in New York and in Brooklyn is it located? So it's in Jamaica Bay. Um, it is not that far from Coney Island. It's very close to the Rockaways. But back in like the 1800s and the early 1900s, it was not really easily reachable from Coney Island um, because it was, it was very swampy. The whole area was very marshy and swampy. So the way that people got to and from Dead Horse Bay from what you might call mainland Brooklyn is through from Canarsie. So there was a ferry uh, landing in Canarsie and it's a much greater distance between Canarsie and Marin Island than from Coney Island, but it was just easier. Uh, so it's in Jamaica Bay. It was considered um, remote. And I mean, it was chosen as a site f- to process dead animals and garbage because it was close enough to the more populated parts of the city um, that it wasn't too hard to get loads of garbage and dead horses there. But also it was far enough away that people thought the smells might not become a problem, which they did become a big problem. There, there's some history that even predates that that I found fascinating in your book. Um, there was an indigenous Native American group called the Canarsie yes. Indians, right? Or, yeah. And, I mean, just ha- knowing some history, you see this from time to time where, like, land was traded. And obviously, we're talking about uh, a few centuries ago, but land was traded for seemingly not very much. Mm-hmm. And this uh, island transferred to, to Dutch hands, right, right for... Right. To me, seeming like some limited supplies almost. Yeah. I mean, the, the, to, on the other hand, Indians didn't live there. They uh. just used it for um, nobody. As far as there's been a number of archaeological surveys um, done by the National Park Service since that land became National Park Service land in the early 70s. And they have not turned up evidence of um, like settlements there. Mm. So they think that Indians probably, the Canarsis, I mean, there are all different groups of the Lenape Indians that of the area would pretend would come there and probably collect shellfish and do fishing and maybe some hunting, but there were not permanent settlements there most likely, which makes sense because the land is very unstable. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, And for, for reasons of, uh, freezing temperatures, the the tides coming in, there's a lot of erosion. It's just very low lying. So it's very vulnerable to like storms and things like that. So not to say that the Indians didn't get cheated. They probably did, but it's not, um, They weren't trading away something that, like, necessarily had a great value to them either. Right, right. Uh, Another fact that I was, or I don't know if it's a fact, but I was fascinated by the fact that twice uh, bears were mentioned. And I thought I even read that, like, alligators had been skinned as well as, like... Well, the alligator was found in the sewer, so that's not from... Oh, okay, okay. There have been a few, like, if you look in old newspaper archives, you know, it's, like, somewhat of an urban legend, but there have been a couple of real times that alligators have been found in sewers. So an alligator was definitely processed there, and occasionally zoo animals. Um, I mean, the island, barren means... It comes from the Dutch word for bear, but I'm not aware that there... I mean, there certainly weren't bears there when the village of Barren Island was there, but uh, maybe there had been bears there at one time. There were bears in the area. 
And so the um, the folks who were living there, and I'll get to sort of, I, I like how you break down each chapter into its own topic. I'll, I'll get to like who they were. Um, but we just talked about garbage processing. Can you just explain like what that is and mm-hmm. and for what purpose that was done? Yeah, so essentially like garbage would be brought, like household garbage would be brought to Barren Island and just sort of dumped. And the first step of what you might call processing was just people scavenging through it and looking for stuff that could be um, that could be reused, recycled, all of that good stuff, like metal, rags, um, I guess glass also, though I mm. haven't seen a lot of references to glass, bones, which were used in different kinds of industrial processes. Um, so that stuff would be scavenged and people would sell it um, to dealers. And then the garbage would be sort of boiled and pressed. They called it reduction. And what they were trying to do is extract as much grease as possible from the Mm -hmm. garbage because that was the actual saleable product that then would be um, shipped all over the world, actually. And then the rest of it would just be incinerated, the stuff that couldn't be used for anything else. Yeah, I found something fascinating that when... Uh, if there was some type of natural disaster or unnatural, if there was a fire and the plants had to shut down for a bit, then the trash would be dumped out at sea. Yeah, and it was really um, a problem for, you know, nobody really seemed to care whether it, you know, hurt the marine life or whatever, but it bothered people when garbage would start washing up on beaches that people used for recreation. So you had to take the garbage very far out into the Atlantic for it to not wash back up. So that was expensive and time-consuming, and oftentimes it would just be dumped somewhere in the ocean that it would end up, like, on the beaches in New Jersey or wherever, and people did not like that naturally. Yeah, and and I know now it's it's shipped out of New York as far as Kentucky. Was yeah, that happening s- simultaneous yeah. to the processing at Barron no, Island? No, no. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I don't know actually where all of the other garbage went that didn't come to Barron Island. That's a good question, and maybe it's answered mm. in the book that I mentioned and I've forgotten. Um, but it's only, I mean, for a long time it was all going to Fresh Kills pretty much in uh-huh. Staten Island, and that Fresh Kills shut down in 2000. I mean, that was from the... 40s, I think it was opened by Robert Moses and it was supposed to be just like a temporary stopgap and then it just never closed and got bigger and became this gigantic landfill. Um, and it closed in 2000. It reopened for a bit in 2001 to accept the debris from the World Trade Center and then, which is there still, and it closed down again and it is becoming a park and there's going to, and it's in the it partially open as a uh, maybe not open, but it's sometimes open. Parts of it are sometimes open as a park, but there's all these like methane pumps and things as well. And the 9-11 debris kind of has its own area that is going to be treated differently, obviously out of respect for the, for what it is. Um, but that was until 2000. So it wasn't until 2000 that um, the garbage started mostly getting, or now all getting shipped out of the city mm-hmm. and mostly out of the state. Now at the time, in addition to processing household waste and I guess like industrial waste, there were um, animals, there were horses because right. this is predating automobiles and then also uh, extracting like fish oil, right? Yeah. So those were two separate industries. Yeah. So they, all of these were considered what they, the term they used was nuisance industries because yeah. they're smelly and disgusting. And there were other areas in the city like Hell's Kitchen and near Newtown Creek in Queens and by the Gowanus that also had these nuisance industries as well. So dead animal processing, like you said, was mostly horses, but also lots of dogs. Basically any animal that died in the city would likely end up at Dead Horse Bay. And that was, whereas the garbage was really just 
scavenged and then made into grease. The dead animals were made into like a bazillion different products from, you know, the fur, the different types of bones, the meat was made into fertilizer, the, you know, all kinds of, the bones were used in like gold refining and sugar refining. I honestly don't know what that means from like a chemistry point Mm. of view, but lots of products, gloves were made out of horse leather, you know, buttons were made out of parts of horses. Um, so that was one thing. And that was actually the longest lasting industry in Barren Island. Like the last factory that closed was the, what they called the horse factory. Um, and the fish oil was, um, it's actually, it's, it's a type of fish called menhaden or moss bunker. And they are not food fish for people because they're very bony and oily. But they are what's used some, I think it's sometimes used for fertilizer, but it now is often or maybe mostly used to make like fish oil capsules basically. And that industry still exists, but the Menhaden here were overfished. And so that industry is now in like the Carolinas. Um, and here it ended around 1900. The, the most fascinating part to me about the book is, is the human study. Um, it's, it's also, it's interesting just hearing it being labeled like in the, the newspapers that you cite as nuisance industries. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about who was living on Barren Island um, and maybe why they may want to work in the nuisance industry? Yeah, I mean, that was what I ended up focusing on was the people in the community, even though I went into it thinking I'm doing environmental history. But obviously it's still environmental history. Um, At any rate, the people who... There was hardly anybody ever lived there before these factories came. Like there was a guy named Dooley who had like a sort of tavern that fishermen would stop at, you know, there were like a few people there, but, uh, there was no real community there until the factories. And first it was just company dorms with single men. Um, and, but pretty soon that was like in the 1850s or so around by the 1870s, there were families living there, which you can see on the census, um, women and children as well. And they were by and large new immigrants. I read, although I couldn't confirm that some people literally went directly from Ellis Island to Barron Island without ever stopping in Manhattan. Um, I'm not sure if that's true, but I saw that mentioned a couple of times. Um, And then obviously children born there, the children of immigrants often stayed. And then there was also an African-American population. Most of the African-American men worked in the fish factories, which was considered like the worst job. And after the fish factories closed, um, that population dwindled, but there were always some, um, black community members on the census in every single census. Um, so they were mostly, they reflected like the immigrants who were coming to New York city in general at those times. So like in the 1850s, Germans and Irish, um, later Italians and Eastern Europeans, but not Eastern European Jews. And I don't know why in particular, um, that would be, but the Eastern Europeans who came were Catholics by and large, like Polish and Russian Jews. I mean, excuse me, Polish and Russian Catholics. Um, so that was the population. And from what I read and from what I heard in oral histories, like the, there was not a lot of like inter-ethnic conflict, but there mm. was not a lot of overlap socially either. Like the Germans hung out with the Germans and the Poles hung out with the Poles, but it sounds like at the school, obviously all the children were in school together. Um, but apart from that, it seems like people kind of hung out with their own little ethnic enclaves. Yeah, any sort of like crime statistics that you talked about were like pretty standard and, and somewhat low level for the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, the newspaper reporters who came to the island at the time tended to paint the people as these sort of like primitive barbarians, but the, there was not a lot of crime. Like but prior to Prohibition, most of the crime that I read about was bar fights. Um, 
which I'm sure were standard everywhere. Um, Still are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, I wasn't able, to, most of the information I have about crime is from newspaper reports. So I didn't, wasn't able to get into like old court records or police records. So, you know, there may have been other things that I didn't come across because they didn't get reported in the news. But um, bar fights, there were occasional um, crimes that were sort of unique to the location, like the garbage factories had deals with like fancy hotels and clubs in Manhattan that had their own sort of insignia on their silverware, which would, I guess, fairly often get thrown out by accident in the kitchen. So the factories agreed to return it. You know, if it says Waldorf Astoria on it, they will return it, you know. And some people who worked in the factories realized like nobody's going to ever really know if we just like snatch this stuff out of the garbage before um, it gets boiled. And so a bunch of people, or I don't know how many people, some people started doing that and selling it to silver dealers. And when that happened, I think it happened twice, it was just the silver dealers who got arrested. And I don't know if that's because the silver dealers were like, you know, wouldn't give up the names of their sources or or what, but uh, it doesn't sound like anyone who actually stole the stuff from the factory got um, in trouble for it. So there were some crimes like that, but that was pretty anomalous. And most of it was just alcohol-related stuff. Then Prohibition came and that stuff dried up. There was one policeman. I mean, the police came from Canarsie. And at Mm. first they would just come if like, excuse me, they were summoned, which could take like a very long time, obviously, for somebody to like row over to Canarsie and be like, hey, and then for them to row back. And then they started sending police in shifts and they built like what they called a substation of the Canarsie police station. And then there was a resident policeman, um, who lived there and that was during prohibition and he would basically had nothing to do most of the time. Um, once in a while there was some kind of problem that he would, he would have to deal with. And his wife was a native Barren Islander. So she helped him out with some of his investigations because people would trust her as like a local more so than they trusted him. You touched on something in there that I think is really important. And that's sort of the, the opinion of these Islanders from outsiders versus what people were self-reporting. Mm-hmm. And I'm generalizing here, but I, I, I think I'm touching on uh, the accuracy of it in that often these articles would cite Barren Islanders as like smelly, first of all, from the mm-hmm. industry, um, unhealthy, uh, much more like criminal-minded than they actually were, uh, really feeling like sort of a almost like a, a, a class divide, right? Almost looking down on them as if they're like lower class, mm-hmm. despite doing something necessary and important for the city. Whereas the people on the island reported like, no, I quite enjoyed my time right. here. I was, people were pretty healthy. There wasn't that much crime. Um, people were neighborly. And it, I, I don't know, I, I see that wherever you fall on the political spectrum today, I won't make it a political conversation, but... You could see even back then, like the wording in articles was chosen in such a way to paint these people in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, and that was done way more blatantly, I think, than it sometimes is done now. Mm. I mean, I definitely learned a lot about how journalism has changed as I read these articles because there was like no even real pretense at fact checking and things like that. So if I read something in one newspaper article and never saw it anywhere else, I basically assumed it was made up, you know, Mm. it might've just, it might've been an interesting fact that only that one person seemed to find out, but there were so many things in articles that like I either couldn't verify or when I found more reliable sources, it was like the opposite, you know, that I began to be skeptical of, um, of some of what was reported. Um, yeah, I mean the people who lived there, I really have not come across anything from people who lived there who complained about it. And it was hard to find sources of people who lived there. So, 
the sources I found, apart from like quotes and newspaper articles, which I think were probably sometimes accurate and sometimes not, um, I found testimony in Board of Health investigations in Albany. Like they, uh, people from surrounding communities were constantly writing to the Board of Health complaining about smells. And it's important to remember that this is a time in history when like the view of how disease spread was really in flux and like changing from the idea that disease was spread by some sort of mysterious invisible miasma or bad air um, to the idea that there were actual pathogens that were like microscopic creatures that you could see under a microscope. Um, so a lot of people thought bad smells could cause illness. And um, so that's why they complained to the Board of Health as opposed to anybody else. And so the Board of Health would periodically do these exhaustive um investigations where they would invite people to come testify and some Barren Islanders testified and all their testimony is like, I like it here. My yeah. kids don't get sick. I'm happy. You know, the jobs didn't pay that badly either. Um, and, and, uh, so I had that resource. I had, you know, the census obviously isn't the exact voices of the Islanders, but it can give you a sense of who lived there, where they were from and so on. And then I had a couple of oral histories that I was able to get my hands on that were super helpful. Um, oh, I was just going to, there was something you said that I was going to also respond to. So you said... Well, something about maybe uh, the depiction of, of... The Islanders' views. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I was going to say is that, I mean, I didn't hear any Barren Islanders say this, but when, one thing I thought about, like I teach in the East Village or what would have been then called the Lower East Side. The Lower East Side was... Like the peak of Barren Islands population in the census was 1910. Like think about the Lower East Side in 1910. People are packed to the gills in these incredibly unhealthy apartments. Like there had been some laws in the tenement housing, you know, was like starting to improve, but it was still pretty horrible. Um, disease spread rampantly because of that. I mean, it was just a very, very tight quarters and not healthy. Whereas Barren Islanders lived in like the sea breezes. They had plenty of space. They had fresh fish because they went fishing. They had their chickens and they they had much healthier kind of daily lifestyle than their exact counterparts who had immigrated at the same time and wound up on the Lower East Side. So to me, that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, I wonder, um, and I mean, I guess there's really no way we can answer this, but I wonder... Like why they're depicted that way, and I, I guess maybe throughout time, people who sort of live outside of the normal like hegemony or of overarching culture, right, like are always seen as 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 different and maybe even dangerous. But, but I was also wondering if like because they were self sufficient and maybe like not plugged into like the economy of the time that they were seen as almost like useless. Then I, I was I trying mean, to like, I think it's probably more likely that it was part of like general attitudes of like sort of Anglo New Yorkers towards yeah. new immigrants. Um, I mean, there were a lot of negative things said about Lower East Side residents too. I think it was more about like these unfamiliar immigrants from places where they had weird religions like Catholicism and, you know, in the case of the Lower East Side Judaism and, places where people might eat different kinds of foods than what yeah. the, you know, like British New Yorkers or whatever had been eating. And, you know, there was one interesting article that I came across that I think I incorporated into the book um, where there was some pro uh, project by some sort of settlement house or I don't think it was a settlement house. It was like some sort of social service organization or it might have even been a government agency where they decided to like send American nurses and stuff to Barren mm. Island to like teach the women how to cook healthy food and take care of their children properly as if they had no idea how to do so. Right. And there were similar programs in the East, in the Lower East Side as well. And some of those 
programs like settlement houses, I think were generally appreciated by immigrants and used by immigrants to um, learn English and do other things that that was helpful to them. But there was also like an incredibly patronizing um, aspect to a lot of programs that, you know, purported to like teach other adult human beings how to do things like take care of their children, you know, which they obviously did know how to do. Right. Yeah. It was interesting to see that like a lot of people even had like self-sustaining farms or, I mean, you, well, yeah, you couldn't call it a farm, but like, a right, right, garden. sorry. Yeah, yeah. A, a garden. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But you even opened and, and people had like a limited amount of, but had some livestock. Mm-hmm. You, you open the book with this interesting scene. I know they, they like do this in Texas now with like feral hogs, but, right. but these like, were not exactly, no, right? yeah. <laughs> but they were sort of free roaming pigs, yes, right? Yeah. So and if, yeah. The police came in and just started shooting them all. Yeah. The department of health had its own police force for things like this. Yeah. I mean, free roaming hogs had been like an issue since new Amsterdam days uh. in um, New York, but uh, they had been banned um, in New York city uh, since like something like the 1850s or at least like at the ma- most of Manhattan. At that time, obviously, Barron Island wasn't in New York City. So just to go, just to clarify whose jurisdiction Barron Island was under, it was part of the town of Flatlands, which was originally a Dutch town called New Amersfoort, um, which was one of what the, are called the six towns of Brooklyn that eventually became the borough. So it was part of Flatlands until... 1896. Um, so it wasn't part of New York city in 1896. It was annexed by the city of Brooklyn, which was like annexing all these different towns. Uh, but only two years after that, all of New York city was, was consolidated, uh, into the five boroughs and into one city. So by the time the hog shoot happened in 1909, it was part of New York city. Um, and it had been for about 10 years. And anyway, the there were no there were not free roaming pigs in other places, but the Barren Islanders had kind of been overlooked in a lot of ways, sometimes positive and sometimes negative, by all of these different jurisdictions. And um, the I don't, I haven't been able to uncover like how the Department of Health came to know that there yeah. were all these hogs, but you know, it was like made complete sense. You know, the hogs eat garbage, you have free meat basically. And, uh, so they came and looked around and asked, you know, some inspector came and said to Baron Islanders, like, are these your hogs? Are these your hogs? And everyone was like, no, that's not my hogs. And then they must have like breathed a sigh of relief and the inspector left. But then a few days later, the inspector came back with these department of health police and they just pulled out guns and started shooting all the hogs and literally like all of them that they could. And so the men were all at work at the factories. They had like organized this hog shoot with the school principal so that they wouldn't be shooting hogs when the kids were out at recess. Um, because that would have been a bad look, I guess (laughs) it had been prearranged. And, um, and so the women came out of their houses and, and freaked out and tried to save their hogs. And then the men started hearing all of the hubbub and came running out of the factories, just like left work to try to like drag their hogs, like indoors to get them away from the police and so a lot of hogs got killed and there were no more free roaming hogs after that. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, that was one of the most wild stories in the book. Yeah. And the, like, I mean, you, you talk about sort of being looked over. Also, some basic municipalities, like you were talking about the, the fire boats who would mm-hmm. come if, if the fire broke out, but largely it would be these sort of bucket brigades because there's no water pressure. Yeah, exactly. So there was never like a fire department um, or fire equipment, you know, at a time when the city was gradually getting more and more sophisticated in its fire equipment. And um, 
there was no water pressure. Like people, there was also no running water. People got their water either from collecting rainwater um, or from digging wells. And so those sources obviously don't provide pressure. And so like the whole island is surrounded by water, but that was almost useless for firefighting. So there would be bucket brigades literally if a small fire broke out. The factories um, had some equipment. I don't know exactly what for fighting fires, but if a fire got too big, they were useless. So somebody would put out the call to a fireboat, but the fireboats, you know, they, they kind of roamed around Jamaica Bay, but I, they didn't, they were never anywhere near Barren Island. So it would take hours for a fireboat to get there, at which point the fire had done its damage and was out. So the, as I don't think I ever came across one, there were a lot of fires because the factories used heat, you know, to reduce the garbage. They, there were also lots of scalding accidents Mm. um, and some fatalities among the workers. Um, So these fires were pretty regular and, the city never did anything about it. Um, yeah, sometimes too they couldn't get there because it would be frozen over completely. Right, or like there was one really big fire that destroyed a whole garbage factory that um, they like there was a they could get there if but they didn't they needed like a pilot to like it, it's tricky getting there. They were coming from Manhattan and you can't just like get in your boat and go like you need a pilot to navigate around like shallow places and stuff or your boat is going to get wrecked. So by they couldn't find a pilot to help them get to Barren Island and, you know, stuff like that. So when did this all, it it gradually, I guess, started closing up. Was it Robert Moses who put like the final, like... Yes. So the last garbage factory closed in 1919 and that was more in response to smell complaints. So like the areas nearby that had like summer residents and stuff like the Coney Island area and areas in the Rockaways and Long Island you know, that would complain about the smells that eventually got the, um, garbage factory closed the last garbage factory. So that's 1919, but the animal factory was still going. Then obviously there are more and more cars in New York city. Um, and so there are fewer and fewer horses being sent to the animal factory. So there's less and less need for that. At the same time, Floyd Bennett field, the first municipal airport in New York city was being built there. Um, and it was chosen partly because the city already owned the land. Um, so it was much cheaper to build on Barren Island than to have to, um, buy land somewhere to build an airport. And they had high hopes for this airport being like a competitor to Newark, which was already in existence, which it never, that Mm. never came to fruition. But at any rate, um, they were building the airport in the twenties. There was less and there were less and less, uh, animals that needed processing. And so people were leaving because the jobs were drying up. Um, and then by 1936, um, there were about 400 people left. The school was still open. There were about a hundred students and Robert Moses decided it's, I've read sort of semi conflicting things. Like they were definitely going to build the Marine Parkway bridge, which Mm. goes from what was Barron Island to the Rockaways. And there were all, there was also this plan to expand Marine Park, like the park part, not the neighborhood. And, um, so he evicted the remaining residents and he first tried to evict them. I think he put signs up like in early March saying everybody has to be out in two weeks. And he could, it wasn't one of his many eminent domain cases because the city already owned the land. The people were just renting the land. Uh So they didn't really have much recourse, you know? So first he said, you have two weeks. Then the local, I believe alderman was the right title at the time, you know, kind of pleaded for a bit more time. And he said, okay, you can have, 
a month. But then the principal of the school, Jane Shaw, who was real um, dynamo, she wrote to Moses and said, look, please let the children complete the school year. And he agreed. And I don't know how much of a big deal that was to him, but it was certainly a big deal to the people who lived there that their kids, he literally moved the eviction date to the day after school ended at the end of June. Um, like he didn't give them July 1st or something. It was like June 27th. Hell of a guy, that Robert Moses. <laughs> so then, um, so everybody had to leave. There was a little bit of uh, privately owned land owned by a family called the Whites, which had owned some of the factories. So a few families moved to the Whites land. But then in 19, you know, then um, the, uh, the airfield became like a Navy Air Force base during World War II, like for test flights and for transport flights to Europe and stuff like that. Um, and so then they just kicked everybody who was living there residentially apart from the members of the Navy out in 1942. Okay. And since that time... Pretty much just the airfield, right? Yeah. So it was Floyd Bennett Field. I honestly don't remember off the top of my head when it stopped being used after. I don't remember if it was used after the war at all or not. Um, LaGuardia had been built meantime. So that was like much closer to Manhattan and took away any kind of commercial business that had. There was no need to reopen Floyd Bennett Field for commercial flights because there would have been no demand because it was so much farther away from Manhattan. So um, I don't know exactly when the Navy left. Uh, the whole place just kind of fell into decrepitude. And in the early 70s, um, it became part of Gateway National Recreation Area, which is part of the National Parks Department. I lived in Bay Ridge for like seven-ish years. And its proximity to Tilden is pretty close. So mm -hmm. my friends and I would go to Tilden. There's a mm -hmm. beach there. There's also, you know, these old... Um, like fortifications right. that I guess you're not supposed to go in, but people just go in because yeah, yeah. it, it looks cool. It takes cool pictures. Yeah. Um, but through going around there, I had discovered uh, Dead Horse Bay. Mm -hmm. That juts up on the, or it's like a, like a bay on the western side of Barren Island, right? Yes. Okay. Where Where is all that trash from? So that trash is from, that's, it's related only in the sense that it's probably coming from Robert Moses again. Um, it's not, there are bones on the beach that probably come from the factories, but the, um, like there's a bone on my bookshelf right there. Oh, cool. The horse bay. Um, although other, I took home another bone recently and it just disintegrated when it dried out, which was kind of interesting. But, um, the garbage on the beach is from the early, it was dumped there apparently in the early fifties, like Anything you find there that has a date on it, like old newspapers and things, it's always 1952 or 1953. Um, and it appears to be like garbage. It doesn't appear to be household garbage in the sense that there it includes things like old ovens and sinks and other like kitchen fixtures and things alongside of t just an infinite number of bottles and stockings and shoes. And it seems to be like most likely the remains of some neighborhood that was demolished mm. um, for some sort of real estate development project or highway project or something, you know. Um, and so most likely what happened is all of that stuff was dumped there as landfill to extend the land, not just as a place to put garbage. Wow. It was supposed to be, you know, anything like that. So, so a lot of, you know, especially lower Manhattan, 
um, a lot of the edges of New York City is landfill. It wasn't originally land. And some of that is like dredged sand, as I understand it. But some of it is garbage um, that then is supposed to be like compacted and kind of capped and so that it won't ever reappear. But it either nobody seems to know if it was improperly capped or it just never was capped for some reason. Um, and in the 1980s, uh, after there were some storms and it just sort of started emerging from underground and it's still emerging from underground. So it's coming from under the land and oh. it's getting gradually washed out to sea. Uh, New York has so many little fascinating spots and enclaves and really unique cultural elements. And I think this is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've even seen like people found like pistols there. It's probably more so from yeah, like s- found- South Brooklyn mafia activity. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of stuff there. Yeah, and people who go with metal detectors find all kinds of things that I don't hmm. find from just looking on the surface. So I think the way that I found out about your work, I think this is correct, is that recently, I believe I might have read something in like on on News 12's website about how they may be considering a cleanup and people are saying that the area is radioactive. Yeah, you know? so it is, there is, has been radioactive material found there. And so a study was done, I don't know what um, precipitated it, but there's a type of object called a deck marker that's used on a boat that's part of a light. I don't understand what it is, but mm-hmm. they have radioactive material in them that is now leaking. Um, and there are these deck markers that appear to just be like part of the general landfill. So there is radioactive material there. It is officially closed, although they have not made any effort to stop people from going. Like there's no physical barrier to going. There's just a couple of signs saying you can't go on the beach. Um, and it is now a super fun site. So Superfund sites notoriously take forever to clean up. Like it could easily be decades. And um, nobody knows, there is no real plan for it Mm. yet. um, From what I understand from all the news that I've read and from the, there's quite a bit of information on the National Park Service's website for Gateway National Recreation Area. It has like a whole multi-page report and like summary of that, what's going on there and what has been found. So there is radioactive material there that will have to be cleaned up. I feel like I mean, it appears to not be terribly radioactive um, from what I've read. It's not like, I think if it were, if they had found really high levels of radioactivity, it would be closed off in a much more forceful way. Um, And also I've read that the radioactivity levels are high enough to like be concerning, but not high enough to be really terribly dangerous. So I want... Um, the, so now I guess both the EPA, which cover, which handles Superfund cleanups and the National Park Service because they're it's their land, I assume will both be involved in some way in whatever happens next. And so I created a petition to request that they include archaeologists and historians and so on in that process so that hopefully, I mean, in my ideal world, a lot of artifacts are preserved and cataloged and researched and they're displayed uh, pu- publicly, like, at, you know, in, an, in a museum or, um, you know, or periodically on display or whatever. And that there's like a digital archive would be amazing mm. too. So that like scholars and ordinary New Yorkers could learn from these materials. They certainly can't save everything. And that would be ridiculous because it's a huge amount of stuff. If that, if there's literally no way to do that safely, like it's just everything has too high of a radioactivity level, then I would at least 
hope that they could photograph things and keep just a digital record if they can't keep the actual objects. But I hope they can keep some actual objects because there's a lot of amazing stuff that you really get a sense of what people's daily lives were like from these objects more so than just reading about it. Do you have some sort of like formal petition to yes, go along with that? Yes, I have a petition that, I mean, I can give you the link to it. Like, yeah, we'll link people. That'd be yeah. Great. So, um, I wrote a letter. It was, I was originally just going to send this letter and I circulated it among people who I know who are interested, but then there's been a certain amount of press about it. So now I haven't, I've delayed sending it, hmm. especially because the timeline on this looks like it's pretty relaxed. Yeah. They're not doing anything <laughs> right now. So, um, I wrote a letter and then I have a Google form that links to the letter that you can, that people can sign. Oh, that's asking great. Asking them to include Archaeologists and the EPA does have like I read their sort of information for lay people about how super fun cleanups go, and they it's part of their process to include archaeologists if there might be anything of archaeological value. Some people look at that beach and think like, oh, look at that disgusting garbage, and other people look at it and say, look at all these archaeological artifacts. So I don't know which way the EPA is going to look at it, and so I want to encourage them to look at it as historically important. Yeah, I definitely understand. Like having both of those opinions, mm -hmm. like certainly right, wanting course. it to be cleaned up, but like you said, that like we potentially would be losing out on some like really important archaeological history there. Yeah, yeah. Does does do you know if your petition has like much momentum? Um, I don't think that it necessarily does. I mean, I don't know how much momentum you need to like for anyone at the EPA to take notice of it. Mm. I think there, the last time I checked, it had like 130 signatures. Okay, which is not nothing, but it's not some kind of overwhelming appeal. Right. So, well, hey, if, if yeah. you're listening to this and that sounds like something that you would want to help out with, we'll send people to that link uh, through the notes in this podcast. Uh, what is the like the most interesting thing that you found there? Oh, I found a lot. I mean, I found some great newspaper bits and pieces of newspapers. Um, oh, I wish I could come up with um, some. There isn't some particular object that I can name as like the most interesting one. Like sometimes for me, a lot of, I mean, I love reading the names of the old beverages that were mm. like New Brooklyn had a big beverage industry with names that, you know, are lost to most people in history. Um, and so it's fun finding like such and such, you know, soda bottled in Brooklyn, New York. Um, it's fun finding those and, um, I'll see if I can, I can't think of anything else off the top of my head that an individual object, like an old rusty roller skate for some reason really Whoa. grabbed me. Like one of the ones with the key that you would turn yeah. to change the size. Like I had when I was a kid, um, there's a car or some kind of car like vehicle that's emerging from the sand. Wow. That I have a series of pictures of from when it first came out and you could kind of, you could climb in, sit behind the wheel. My daughter would like pretend she was driving. And now it's like so falling apart that you couldn't possibly do that. And there's like plants growing into it. And the other thing that I love about the objects on the beach, which won't be preserved if they clean it up, is just the juxtaposition of these man-made objects with the sea plants and creatures that now like live in them, like bottles with snails that are living in them and seaweed that is like glommed around some object and sort of intertwined and melded with it and clams, clamshells and crab carcasses and horseshoe crabs and stuff. I mean, all of that stuff kind of together... Mm. I don't know how to really describe it, but it's it's very, to me, I find it fascinating to see those two things together. It becomes its own ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. it does, yeah. I uh, mean, it's kind of like, you know how they've put subway cars in, like disused subway cars are being used as reefs. It's yeah. kind of like that, yeah. Yeah, I had someone on from the, if you've ever heard of the Billion Oyster Project who are like yeah. uh, 
working on the the Gowanus and uh, mm-hmm. Newtown Creek. Um, are those uh, photos on online on Instagram or anything? Um, yeah, a lot of them are on. So my Instagram, I originally it's called Closet Archaeology, and I originally started it for the Closet Archaeology project that I was telling you about. But um, I I feel like they're quite connected. Um, just the fascinating debris from different places in New York City that tells us about the history of ordinary people's lives. And so I do have a lot of Dead Horse Bay pictures on there, and then I have a ton of Dead Horse Bay pictures that are just sitting on my computer. Cool. So. Well, I'll send I'll send people in that direction as okay. well. Um, I'll give a quick plug for the book, too. I mean, sometimes historians or... Yeah, historians and, and sometimes, you know, like PhDs write for PhDs or historians write for historians and people can sometimes get bogged down in the, the technical terms and it can come across as quite boring. I mean, no disrespect to people in that field, but um, I thought your book was really fascinating. Uh, I think it would be interesting for people from New York, not from New York. Uh, do you have a, any interest in, in doing another project or documenting some other type of history in the future? Yeah, I definitely would like to. I don't know when I realistically will have time to, although I don't know how I had time to do that either. I mean, (laughs) part of me wants to like do a bigger book about Barren Island and like get into archives that I wasn't able to get into. Mm. I mean, part of it, you know, I'm a full-time teacher and a single parent. So like my, a lot of my research was done at like 10 o'clock at night, which is not when archives are open. Um, So I did have to like take time off to go to Albany, to go to the Catholic church, the Catholic diocese archives, to go to the municipal archives and so on. Um, And there probably are other archives I could get into that are open during like business hours, Mm. Um, like the police and the courts. And um, I could get deeper into the board of education archives. I didn't go through everything that they had. Um, And the town of Flatlands archives, which are at the municipal archives. So sometimes I think about doing like a more in-depth Barren Island book. A lot of people who've gone to my talks have asked like what where did the people go after they left and like that would take a lot of census digging I think but I'm curious about that Um, but I'm also interested in other places and times in New York City Um, like one um, thing that they uh, thought about using Bar- there were two other uses that uh, newspapers reported Barren Island was being considered for besides the factories and the airport, which was um, a quarantine station and um, a penitentiary. And in both cases, it was, and there were actually the penitentiary was one that was in Crown Heights, not too far from here, that they were considering moving. In both cases, the city eventually decided that like the Barren Island was too remote um, and it would just be too much of a pain to get supplies and people there. But that made me curious about what penitentiaries were like then mm. and what, um, what uh, quarantine stations were like. And, and I read about this quarantine station in Staten Island that was like sort of burned down in a, by a mob of Staten Islanders who didn't want all these diseased people there. Whoa. So that was kind of interesting. And then islands, I think, are interesting. Oh, so, yeah. Plum Island? You know, Plum, you know the, some, I, like, there's an island called Ruffle Bar in Jamaica Bay, not too far oh. from Barren Island, that still exists as an island. And a few people have lived there. I don't think that it is there's enough to it for a book, but it's kind of cool. Maybe the islands of Jamaica Bay Broad Channel is very interesting Mm. neighborhood, which is kind of Island ish, um, city Island. You know, there's a lot of different islands, um, that could be interesting. I would love to do another project. I mean, I may, I can retire when I'm 55 from teaching with my full pension, which isn't too many years from now. So sometimes I think I would get a might get a history PhD at that point and try to follow up on one of these interests, but I would love, I loved doing it. So cool. I just need to find something else that I love 
as much yeah, as Yeah, well, Mary. listen, uh, you know, I hope so. Uh, I'm, I'm sincere in the fact that this was a, a really fascinating book. So I'll, I'm going to link everybody to your websites, to, to where to find the book, uh, and then they'll, they'll follow along. And if there's a project in the future, we'll check that out. Cool. Thank you. Cool. Thanks so much, Mary. All right. Thank you. Hey, that is a wrap on episode number 209 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thanks so much to Miriam. I thought that this was a really cool conversation and the book is really fascinating. So I would recommend that you check that out. Um, go to, I was going to say, go to Amazon. I don't want you to go to Amazon. If, if Amazon's the only place you can find it, go to Amazon, but try to support uh, an independent place or a bookstore in your neighborhood. You can go there and you can ask them to order it directly. That's probably the best thing to do. Okay, Voyagers, thank you to you as well for tuning in as always. And as always, I would like to leave you with a word here, and that is please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon. Peace. Mm-hmm.